Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film, the film review podcast from a female perspective. I'm your host, Anna Smith, and today we're teaming up with our friends at Bird's Eye View to bring you a special episode dedicated to two films, Clemency and Quip Camp, both are very different, very powerful films by women. As regular listeners will know, Bird's Eye View have been campaigning for equality in films since 2003. They started as a film fest, now they're a year-round mission with influencer networks and cinema partnerships in 12 cities. Our first guest is Chinonye Chukwu, the writer-director of Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner Clemency. Clemency follows the story of prison warden Bernadine Williams, played by Alfred Woodard, who is forced to confront the psychological impact of her bruising profession as she prepares to execute yet another inmate, played by Aldous Hodge. I also have Mia Bayes on the line from Bird's Eye View. How do you keep doing it? I do my job. Anthony's defense attorney has already asked for a reprieve from the governor's office. You want to play as good guys and bad guys. And I'm one of the bad guys. But I give these men respect. All the way through. Hi, Johnny. Thank you for joining Girls on Film. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. Clemency is an incredibly powerful watch. Can you talk us through the inspiration for the film? Well, I was uh, first inspired to write Clemency the morning after Troy Davis was executed. So Troy Davis was a black man executed in the state of Georgia here in the States in September 2011. And leading up to his execution, hundreds of thousands of people from around the world were protesting against his execution, including a handful of retired wardens and directors of corrections who amongst, between them, had carried out hundreds of executions. And so the morning after Troy Davis was executed, you know, so many people around the world were navigating a complexity of emotions, frustration, anger, pain, sorrow, etc. And I just thought to myself, if we're all navigating all of these emotions, what must it be like for the people who were responsible for taking, for carrying out his execution. What is it like when your livelihood is tied to the taking of human life? It's incredibly vivid when it comes to, as you say, the emotional cost on Alfred Woodard's character. What was the cost to you emotionally for making this film? It must have been incredibly life-changing. Well, I mean, it was life-changing in that, you know, before writing Clemency, I had known nothing about prisons, jails, death penalty, clemency. I didn't even know what a warden did. I remember the, I had to Google, <laughs> what does a warden do? Brilliant. <laughs> and so I committed years of my life to not just researching, but to advocating for the very people I was representing. So 
I created a film program where I taught women who are incarcerated to make their own short films and script to screen. And I volunteered on about 14 clemency cases. And that is the work that was the most life-changing because it expanded my capacity for compassion. It expanded my capacity for empathy. And it really made me realize that I cannot and should not define anybody by their worst possible acts. And it really helped me really see the humanity in people in the gray area. Um, and I don't have to agree. I don't have to like you. I don't even have to want you around me, but I can appreciate your humanity. And that actually made me a better writer because writing and directing, it's empathy. And so it just changed every part of me. Um, and then emotionally, it, it, it also... You know, it was kind of cathartic, you know, growing up as a teenager, I struggled with severe depression and I've always been a bit of a loner. I mean, even now and, and you know, 35 and I feel like I in writing, particularly Anthony's character, I really had to kind of dig deep into some dark spaces I had navigated as a teenager and really heal through the tapping into those spaces and writing these characters. Well, the writing is exquisite and also the performances are tremendous. There are some amazing scenes where there is no dialogue and you're just looking at the characters' faces, you know, and Nancy being one of those. How much did you direct those scenes and talk to the actors about what thoughts were going through their heads? With Alfred, she and I spent months together um, before production going through literally every scene in the script and every scene in terms of not just what was happening narratively, but what was going on emotionally within Bernadine. So we really had lengthy conversations about Bernadine's entire emotional arc. And we took a trip to Ohio for a couple days where I introduced her to several wardens in the state and we spoke with them and talked with other correctional staff and also talked with some men who are currently on death row and talked to some men and women who are incarcerated serving various sentences. And, and so all of that really informed um, the performance as well. And, and Aldous, um, it was important that he also visit men who are on death row and who are serving life sentences and I gave him some some literature to read and we we talked extensively as well for weeks and spoke extensively to Richard. And so a lot of the directing work, a lot of really happened before production and really diving into who these characters are. And so by the time we were on set for Alfrey, it was a matter of reminding her of some of the things we had talked about in you know m months leading up to production or reminding her where her character is in their emotional arc. And the same for the other characters as well. I mean, I believe that, you know, as a director, when working with an actor, to speak in the language of um, emotional and psychological beats and emotional intentions and objectives. And so that was really the language I use when talking with all the actors. Well, it's interesting you mentioned obviously meeting a lot of real people in these situations, including wardens. And we nearly always see wardens portrayed by white men on screen generally mm -hmm. um, but of course did you find that you met a lot of black women in your travels i mean most of the wardens that i that um are in ohio are black women wow and so most of most of the wardens i met almost all the wardens i <laughs> i spoke to were black women and um and there i mean and and the woman there was a woman a white woman who was warden in San Quentin prison in California for over 20 years. And San Quentin is the largest death row in the country of, uh, in, in America. And so I just think that um, 
media does not represent that and doesn't represent women in those positions of power and authority. You know, for the past seven years, you've blocked every single attempt I've made to try to get him to be treated like a human being. You're gonna kill him, is not enough? I have treated him like a human being every step of the way. Is that my job to bypass the rules to accommodate your special request? Special request. How is it a special request? Open the gates, please. I'd like to leave now. That I have to maintain request. order and safety in this prison. I got over a thousand bodies that I have to ensure are safe and accounted for. It's hard enough without you complicating things. What you have to do is protect yourself now that this place is under fire since you botched the last execution. Well, Bernadine does buck a lot of on-screen conventions, not only um, to do with race, but also gender. She she pops up the bar after work. Her husband's the one that's trying to reach her emotionally. He's a sort of vulnerable one. And I thought that was a very interesting role reversal to what we so often see on screen. And you make it feel very natural. Is it important to you to challenge norms on film across all of the cast? I don't even look at it as challenging norms. I just look at it as writing these women characters as human, <laughs> you know, like Bernadine is a human, is a fully realized black woman. And, and so her humanity is not defined by the coddling of a man's emotional insecurities or needs, but yet that's often how we write female characters, particularly black female characters. They're in relation to men or boys that they're tied to. And I mean, that's not my lived reality. That's not the reality that I see around me. And I know that, you know, women, like we're far more fully realized than that. And so that's really my approach to it. I just want to create a human being, show a human being on screen. Do you want to speak a little bit more, if you would, about the significance of race in this story? You know, I wasn't thinking about telling a story that's defined by race or gender, you know, like, I mean, I'm not whitewashing Bernadine. She's a black woman. And, but like her narrative, her emotional arc is not solely defined by her race and gender. And so her blackness just is her black womanness just is, it's not a plot point. It's not a narrative device. And so that is part of her humanity. That's part of what makes her human. And so that really was the only intention I had when it comes to race and gender. Well, that's what interested me because there is no real reference to race, but certainly in terms of the execution system, I mean, you look at the statistics and obviously they're pretty horrifying. Mm -hmm. But I like the way that you don't address that directly necessarily. And I think it inherently complicates the narrative, right? It inherently complicates the narrative to see this Black woman who facilitates the taking of life, particularly the taking of life of a Black man, you know, when oftentimes we see Black women on screen, they're mammies or they're mules or they are, you know, the caregivers or whatnot, and they're in service to men and boys. And so her presence inherently you know, challenges those archetypes and stereotypes um, without overpronouncing itself. What kind of reactions have you had from people who've had the opportunity to see the film? It's been overwhelmingly powerful and positive, and most people have no idea what they're what, <laughs> what they're getting themselves into. They, I think, a lot of people coming in think it's going to be one thing, but then the movie ends, and they're just like stunned. <laughs> it's completely different than what most people have ever seen in terms of representation of the American prison space or capital punishment. 
and even black female characters, you know, and also, uh, you know, what's interesting, I had a conversation with uh, a film critic who saw the film and, and she was saying that she rarely sees black death represented in this way and that it's not glorified, it's not focused on in a way that's traumatizing in terms of seeing every piece of it. And there's something very powerful about not having to see it, but yet we know that it's in the air. And that was that was a very fascinating conversation that I had. And so it's it's been an amazing I'm I've been so honored to to feel and to hear people's reactions. Now, as you know, Bird's Eye View are supporting the film and they are joining with us on this episode. So I want to bring in now Mia Bays. Hello, Mia. Hello, Chinonye. Hi, Mia. How are you? I'm very well. It's such an honour to, to meet you. I saw the film at Sundance 2019. It was the film that knocked me out more than any other movie. And Thank you. we have been tracking this film since then to make sure it got a UK release. Thank you so much. So we're a mission bringing ever greater audiences to films by women. So this is incredibly important to be backing this film. Um, the question I wanted to ask was, the film was obviously released some time ago in the US, but it's coming out in the UK at a time when, like all the characters, we're all facing dark nights of the soul, not just because of Corona, but also post George Floyd and the massive impact that that death had on the world. So I just wondered if there is anything about the kind of way that the film lands for you, like the meaning, the impact, the resonance of the film that you are reflecting on, given where we are in the world right now. Well, in this moment, we're also questioning or challenging the criminal legal system and really interrogating the question, what does justice really look like? What is the true function of, you know, the police system is all part of the prison industrial complex, right? And so in, in questioning the function and the necessity of police, we're also questioning the function and the necessity of criminal legal systems in America and beyond and other parts of the world. And so I think that that is something that this film clemency also does, that it really complicates what we think our views are on the prison system and capital punishment specifically. Um, and so I hope that, especially in these times that we're in, that this film can be an extension of that interrogation. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the way that we're releasing the film is also innovative in that it's getting a virtual theatrical release and cinemas that have signed up and racial justice organizations and black film collectives all of these institutions that are at the moment closed and struggling to survive can all participate sharing in the profits. 50% of all of the viewing profits in the first five weeks. No, I did know about that. And I think that that's fantastic. The spirit in which I made the film was not just a piece of art. I wanted it to also be an extension of advocacy and for it to contribute to um, various marginalized communities and organizations that are doing the work to advocate for people of color, particularly people who have been or are incarcerated. So I'm really honored and thankful that um, a film I made could help to be used to as a, as a tool for advocacy in that way. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Chinonye, before we let you go, is there anything else you wanted to add? I just want to say that I'm, I'm excited to bring it to the UK. I'm thankful that 
um, that people are excited for it. I am especially interested in how it's received in a region that doesn't carry out the death penalty. <laughs> and I'm curious to know what those conversations are like. And I hope that you're moved. I hope people are moved by the film and continue the conversations in their own spaces, in their own communal spaces. We will be encouraging that, both as Girls on Film and Birds Eye View, to continue the conversation and the campaign. So congratulations again. Thank on you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. How long is this going to be going on? All we want is to be seen and to be heard. It is not over. I don't know if this is going to make things better, but I'm trying. I can't understand. I can't know what it's like. I am alone. Clemency is available on Curzon Home Cinema and via clemencythefilm.co.uk from Friday 17th of July 2020. So Mia, thank you for joining that conversation about Clemency. Please tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to support this film and also tell us about the next film that we're going to be talking about, which you're also supporting with Bird's Eye View. There are two connections I wanted to shout out. One was that both films I discovered at Sundance, so 2019 Grand Jury Prize winner, Clemency, it was the film that knocked me out. I actually was supposed to see another movie after I watched Clemency and I just couldn't. I had to go and walk and think and Crip Camp had a similar impact although it was more joyous and moving because they were all there at the screening so I wanted to sort of say about the importance of festivals you know especially ones like Sundance that are very very strong on the intersectionality and the importance of discovering great work at places like that where you don't even I didn't know anything about the movies I just went I was intrigued and I was so blown away by both in very different ways. And the second point was that I think in different ways, they're both image activists as filmmakers. We call ourselves bird's eye view cultural activists and image activism is a newer term that I've recently learned around filmmakers who are very mindfully centering people who are marginalized, who may themselves as filmmakers be marginalized and telling stories and using representations, not just to obviously do good in the world and blow away old kind of biases and stereotypes, but also actually to change things, to open doors, to, you know, change the narrative. And I think they're both really important examples of that. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing both films with us and the listeners. We're about to hear from the directors of Crip Camp, which is an uplifting documentary about equal opportunities, about activism and about teenagers having fun. Co-directed by Nicole Newnham and Jim Lebrecht, it goes back to the 1970s when Jim had the summer of his life at a hippie camp for teens with disabilities, a summer that would inspire lasting change in the disability community. I wanted to be part of the world, but I didn't see anyone like me in it. I hear about a summer camp for the handicapped run by hippies. Somebody said, you probably will smoke dope with the counselors. And I'm like, sign me up. Come to Camp Jeanette and find yourself. There I was. I was in Woodstock. You wouldn't be picked to be on the team back home. But at Jeanette, you had to go up the back. Even when we were that young, we helped empower each other. It was allowing us to recognize that the status quo is not what it needed to be. 
So welcome, Jim and Nicole, to Girls on Film in this very special episode with Bird's Eye View. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Happy to be here. Jim, I'd like to let you know that you're only the third man ever to come on to Girls on Film, so congratulations. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm very honoured. <laughs> We make special exception for, for the right people, so well done. Thank <laughs> now, you. And where are we speaking to you from? I'm uh, calling you from Oakland, California. Excellent. And whereabouts are you, Nicole? I'm in Indianola, Washington, on the beach. On the beach? Wow, because I think I can hear some birds in the background there. Indeed you can. I'm very envious. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, thank you both for making Crip Camp. It's a joyful watch and an educational one as well. I learned a lot. Let's start with you, Jim. How did you and Nicole come to work on this together? Well, Nicole and I have been friends and colleagues for a very long time. I met her first when uh, I was a sound mixer and designer on one of her early feature-length documentaries. But I've had the pleasure of working with her on three projects over the course of about 15, 20 years. And, uh, you know, I just love her work. And so... Certainly talking to her about an idea for a film uh, was something that happened. And the idea, obviously, it came through your own experiences. Nicole, do you remember the moment when you first had a conversation about Camp Jeanette and Jim told you about this idea and his experiences? I remember it like it was yesterday, actually, because um, he had pitched me on uh, this idea that perhaps, you know, I could uh, direct and he could co-produce with me a film about, you know, some sort of serious issues around disability, which were really um, meaty, interesting issues. And we had a great discussion. But as we were kind of walking back to his office building, he said, um, but you know what I've really always wanted to see is a film about my summer camp. And I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because I think a lot of people have these very emotional, wonderful summer camp memories, you know, but not everybody's summer camp deserves to be a feature documentary film. And then he starts <laughs> telling me about this camp. And I literally just wanted to like, you know, sit down because I'd never heard such a thing. You know, I, I realized as he starts describing this kind of like radical camp down the road from Woodstock run by hippies and he and his friends smoking dope with the counselors and all the music that was playing and this and that, that that very description was challenging so many stereotypes that I realized simultaneously I held as a non-disabled person about disability and the disability community. And then he said, you know, I think that there's something about this profound experience of liberation at this camp that has something to do with the movement that came later. And that was even more exciting to me because, you know, this this um, disability rights movement is an incredible movement that's not very well known or very well discussed um, like it should be. And kind of the way we tell the story of ourselves as Americans, we include all these other great civil rights movements and not that one. So the idea that we could have this kind of joy-filled, wild teenage romp into a really, really important part of U.S. history was just amazing to me. And I understand that you came across some footage. I mean, Jim, was it the fact that you remembered some footage actually being filmed at the camp? Because obviously the archive footage we see here is that it is, feels really key to taking us vividly back to that place right with you. Well, when we talked, it had been about 45 years or so since I was at camp. But I did remember that this group of like hippie videographers had come to, to camp and they had actually given me a camera. They had strapped a heavy uh, portable deck to the handlebars of my wheelchair and handed me the camera, and someone pushed me around the camp so I could actually do a camp tour. 
And all I really remembered was that the word people was in the name of this group. Nicole really spent like a couple of months trying to track these people down, and we finally got a lucky break. I think it was longer than that. I spent a really long time looking for it. And finally, there was a magazine that was focusing on the work of kind of these early port a pack video activists. And in the back of that magazine, there was an advertisement that said, Crabs Outbreak at Camp Jened for the Handicapped by the People's Video Theater, $6.99. And I was able to track down some of the surviving members of the group and one of them, it turned out, lived just a few miles away from Jim and I. We're based in Oakland, California, and Howard Gutstadt, one of the leaders of the People's Video Theater, happened to live in San Francisco and was midway through transferring all of this footage, which had survived 17 moves and all of these, you know, moldy basements and various things that they'd lived in over the years. So it really was kind of a miracle that they had five and a half hours of this footage they had shot at Camp Jen Ed one summer. And some of it indeed had been shot by Jim himself because they had taken a shine to Jim when he was 15 years old and had handed him the camera and asked him to do some filming himself. And so it was just like a, a magical, almost kind of miracle to get this hard drive full of this footage and be able to take a trip back in time to, to Camp Jeanette in 1971. Well, I must say it was absolutely brilliant watching it. And I can see why they took a shine to you, Jim, because you were so entertaining watching it. How did it feel watching it back, your young self? Oh, my gosh. It was uh, surreal and bittersweet. And I don't know, it's like you get a chance to kind of look through a special telescope back in time and uh it was great to kind of go back to camp it was rather sad and moving for me to see people that are no longer with us and you know as nicole and i were going through each of the reels 30 minute reels of the film on on video as we got near the end it was kind of like i wanted to see more of certain people and was hoping they would show up but it was remarkable to say the least it must have been an incredibly emotional experience. I do have to go back to something Nicole said then, because for people who haven't seen the film, the fact that there was a crabs outbreak <laughs> in, in the headline there. I mean, A, how fascinating, and this is covered in the film, but B, interesting that that was the headline. Would anyone like to explain that for people who haven't seen the film? Basically, when the folks from the People's Video Theatre showed up at the uh, camp, initially the gate was closed and eventually they were let in. You know, they had bumped into some people from Camp Jeanette at a gas station. And, you know, the folks from Camp Jeanette said, why don't you come over and film our Camp Olympics? So when they finally were able to go in, there was no Camp Olympics because two counselors had wound up getting body lice from having an amorous moment in an abandoned house across the street from the camp. And out of a great deal of concern for the campers, the camp was turned completely upside down. All of the sheets were either in the swimming pool or drying on the lawn. Everybody had to quarantine and wash with this delightful shampoo called Quell. But what they did do was, as Nicole mentioned, there was this video about the you know outbreak of crabs at Camp Jeanette. And it wound up on Manhattan cable TV in the mid-70s. And I remember distinctly... Being in college in San Diego, my father in New York would call me and say, uh, your crab documentary's on again. <laughs> what a great reputation to have. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. But um, what these folks wanted to do is bring this technology to marginalized communities. And for Nicole and I to 
be able to take what they did and collaborate with bringing it to this film is like a fulfillment of what they were all about so many years ago. What we tried to do was provide the kind of environment where teenagers could be teenagers without all the stereotypes and the labels. And that was a byproduct of the times, you know, of social experimentation. We realized the problem did not exist with people with disabilities. The problem existed with people that didn't have disabilities. It was our problem. So it was important for us to change. The film is very much, to me, about, um, as Nicole was saying, kind of challenging stereotypes or, you know, what you might expect a summer camp to be. Mia Bays from Bird's Eye View has called you image activists, creating change through positive, complex, deeply empathic filmmaking practices. Nicole, how do you feel about that term in terms of your mission statement and, and your filmmaking? Well, that, that is a wonderful thing to hear. I mean, that was certainly the intent, you know. Um, I think I remember that from our very first conversation, Jim. You know, you saying to me, like, this will explode a lot of stereotypes that people have about people with disabilities, you know. First off, sexual. I mean, we have a bunch of really horny teenagers <laughs> in our film. And actually, you know, who, who evolve into having, like, very empowering and complex sexual relationships and experiences as time goes on. And we follow this space of teenagers, you know, out across the country to California and into this burgeoning disability rights movement. But also there's so many things, you know, so many things that I think people with disabilities on screen um, and in popular media don't get a chance to do, you know, like grow up, like not be heroic. <laughs> All of these things that we get to see in the film are really doing so much work. And we worked very carefully with some really talented verite editors, including Mary Lampson, who edited Harlan County, one of the kind of seminal 1970s verite films, to constantly be both holding people so they felt like they were a part of the camp community, the viewers watching the film, that they, they were constantly feeling good and welcome and part of what was going on, but also occasionally being really challenged, you know? So you have these moments where you go, oh my God, I have been prejudiced, you know? I have not seen people with disabilities in this light. And then another moment happens where you're like, oh my God, I love these people. <laughs> you know, They feel like my friends. And the intention was that in the first 40 minutes of the film where you're at the camp, you fall in love with the characters. You see them as completely realized, you know, human beings. And then you can go into the history really seeing it in a different way than you would if we'd sort of said, this is the noble history of the disability rights movement. And people might still feel like that story was othered because we really, really wanted people at the end of the film to feel like, like this story is our story. It's something we can all be proud of and we should all hold. Well, you do it perfectly because that was exactly the emotions that I was going through watching it. You know, you get to know everyone and then, yeah, you go on this journey with them and you have an opportunity to check yourself and your own prejudice. So amazing. Congratulations. Jim, are there any scenes in the film that are particularly close to your own heart personally? You know, there's a, one image that I just can't get out of my head. There's a moment in the film where the People's Video Theater set up a camera and a monitor in the dining hall so that we can kind of see ourselves in real time. And the camera turns towards Nancy and I, my first girlfriend, and we're there together and I've got my arm around her. And um, it's one of those things that when I saw it, for maybe the third or fourth time, I 
I got this sense memory of how soft her shoulder was. Oh, wow. And, and what her shirt felt like. And it, it was, I mean, I don't mean to sound too woo-woo, but it was really amazing. That's powerful. Thank you so much for that. I wanted to talk to you both, Nicole, this is something that you touched on. Obviously, representation in film of people with disabilities is pretty dire. One in four people in the United States live with a disability, but only 2.7% of characters in entertainment are people with disabilities. What needs to change in the film industry to improve that dire statistic? Well, you know, that was one of the reasons Jim and I started talking um, about working together was that Jim has had this storied career as a sound mixer and sound designer in our in our field for many years. And he has really been advocating for increased representation, but also for increased accessibility and um, increased participation by filmmakers with disabilities. And I think that as we've gone on, we've kind of used this project as a bit of an icebreaker to make sure that the film festivals we go to are accessible and that the screenings we have are accessible and things like that. And, you know, we worked really hard with Netflix to make sure that our film is accessible in many languages with closed captioning and audio description and transcript for the deaf blind and things that weren't necessarily being done before to the extent that they are for this project. So that's all helpful, but I think the thing that is really going to help the most is when disabled people are more empowered to tell their own stories within the industry. And one of the things we really wanted this film to do was to incentivize people to understand why they would want to identify as having a disability and become a part of the community and all of the empowerment and potential change that can come from that for people both individually but also collectively. And so it's been really exciting as the films come out and as there's now, for instance, this you know movement towards racial justice in the U.S., to see that the film is relevant and that people are making those connections, you know, between movements. And um, and we're starting to see like a lot of folks coming to Crip Camp because they, they're interested now in, in identifying as being disabled, perhaps in ways they wouldn't have before. And maybe some of those people will go on to tell their stories. I think that uh, we set out to hopefully reframe how people with and without disabilities think about folks with disabilities and and it's been a remarkable experience to see how that seems to be taking place you have to know your history to be able to to kind of help develop your pride in any community and i think that it's fortunate that we came together to make this film and that we had the resources to tell this one story well, thank you for sharing it with us. And thank you both so much for coming on to Girls on Film. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. No problem. Great to talk to you. Take care. What we saw at that camp was that our lives could be better. If you don't demand what you believe in for yourself, you're not going to get it. I said like to see um, the handicapped people depicted as people. Excuse me? <laughs> Quip Camp is on Netflix now. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and thanks to our executive producer, Heather Archbold of HLA Productions, our producer, Jane Long, our intern, Heather Dempsey, and to Bird's Eye View. 
Girls on Film is on social media, of course. You can follow us on Twitter at girlsonfilm underscore pod and on Instagram at girlsonfilm underscore podcast. We also have a Patreon page and we'd love it if you could pledge a small amount each month to support us. You can go to patreon.com forward slash girlsonfilmpodcast. Please subscribe and review us if you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, we've still got special film shows available on the BFI YouTube channel. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Chinonye Chukwu, Mia Bays, Jim Lebrecht, and Nicole Newnham in our latest Girls on Film isolation pod. Stay safe, everyone. Wait, you want me to tell them what happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, two people got cramps and um, they're spreading. <laughs> <laughs>